as you and I study the book of Colossians, we're going to see Christ's preeminence over all things, that he indeed is Lord over all. You're listening to Colossians, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Today we start a new series in the book of Colossians, so please turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Have you ever heard of what's called the Cosmic Center of Spiritual Light? Here's what their website says. Lightworkers, wanderers, seekers on the path, and all awakening beings. Be a part of the vision as we collectively create a place of gathering where all are welcomed unconditionally to participate, exchange, and create a new world vision of planetary unity, harmony, and peace. The cosmic center of spiritual light, which serves the world through healing, education, and enlightenment, embraces the new paradigms of our awakening consciousness. The center offers many weekly and special events and classes that are educational, uplifting, and transformational for spiritual seekers, whether beginning your journey or well along the path. Join others who share the journey and the vision as we welcome you to this special place. Do you know where that is located? You might say, is that LA? Is that New York? Certainly that's Sedona, Arizona. Well, no, that is actually right here in our backyard, Sarasota. In fact, if you went on Google and typed in the word spiritual Sarasota into your search engine, you would come across 1.5 million hits. Now, if you were to do that in Bradenton, type in spiritual Bradenton, that only comes up with about 400,000 hits. But if you were to type in spiritual Lakewood Ranch, you would come up with over 4 million hits. So that means collectively in our region, we have a hunger for spiritual things. People in our region aren't as concerned about being religious, but they're absolutely concerned with being spiritual. In fact, there's a new category of believers called SBNR. SBNR simply stands for spiritual, but not religious. People who are SBNR would say, I practice spiritual things. I'm a spiritual person, but I don't need religion to help me be spiritual. Ed Stetzer with Lifeway Research found that 72% of 18 to 29 year olds would consider themselves a part of this SBNR group, the spiritual, but not religious. Spiritual people don't have to worry about a God and his holiness. Spiritual people don't have to necessarily go to the Bible to hear God speak to them. They just look for the voice of their own hearts. Spiritual people don't go to a gathering to receive instruction. Uh, They just kind of look to the stars or look within. Now, we know this, that the answer to the questions of life, to our emptiness, to the reality of why we exist and what our purpose is, is not found in spirituality. But neither is it found in religion. It's found in a person the person of Jesus Christ. And that was exactly what the church in Colossae needed to hear. They were a church that, much like Shoreline, found themselves in the crossroads of a culture that was spiritual. The city of Colossae was one that Paul had never visited. and It was actually probably the most insignificant of all the cities that Paul wrote to. But the message of the book of Colossians was anything 
but insignificant. In fact, it's one of the most significant messages that we can ever hear, and that is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus is sufficient, that Jesus is Lord of all. And the Colossians needed to understand what their Christ-centered identity ultimately was. Paul wrote this letter while under house arrest. He was unable to leave his home. You could say that he was quarantined at home, except in his case, he was chained to a Roman soldier 24-7. So guys, it's not as bad as it could be. Now we're going to see in this series together the supremacy of Christ, and we're going to see as we study these passages how Jesus is Lord of all. And so this morning, we're going to give an intro of the entire book and look at two specific verses. So here's our outline together as we study this today. We're going to see, number one, the background of Colossians. Number two, we're going to see the reason that Colossians was written. Number three, we're going to learn the message, the overall message of the book of Colossians. And then finally, we'll look at the first two verses of chapter one and do the exposition of Colossians. So let's begin with the background of the letter that we call Colossians. Of all the cities that Paul wrote to, the city of Colossae was probably the most insignificant. It was located in Western Turkey, about 100 miles east of Ephesus. So Hierapolis and Laodicea stood six miles apart on opposite sides of this valley with the Lycus River flowing between them. Colossae was located a few miles upriver on the same side as Laodicea. And the areas around these three cities, the area is very wealthy. It was a very fertile land. There was a lot of wool, a lot of sheep. And so they were known for dyeing wool garments. Laodicea was the financial headquarters and the political headquarters. People would go to Heriopolis for the spas and they would drink in the water that was believed to have medicinal benefits. An earthquake in AD 60 was believed to have decimated the city of Colossae, so much so that by the time Paul was writing to them, they were just an insignificant town. Now, it's interesting that in the book of Revelation, we hear about the city of Laodicea. We hear about the church that gathered there. And even though it's not a good message, remember, it's to the church of Laodicea that Jesus said, I would rather you be hot or cold, but since you're lukewarm, since you're neither, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You guys remember that text in Revelation chapter three? Well, that's an interesting statement because the Lycus River flowing through Colossae was very cold in the city of Colossae. And in Heriopolis, people went there because the water there was very warm. And so when the cold waters of the Lycus River flowed downstream into Laodicea and the hot springs from Heriopolis intermingled, by the time they got to Laodicea, it was a very tepid, very lukewarm water. And Jesus used that analogy, a very understandable one, to uh, speak to the church of Laodicea about their lackadaisical fervor for Christ. Now, there was a man named Epaphras, and he was believed to be the church planner who originally planted this church in Colossae and also worked in these other sister cities. And Epaphras wanted to relay to Paul that the church in Colossae was a faithful church, but he did have some concerns. There was pressure culturally around them that would have caused the body to question who they were in Christ. So visiting Paul, who was again in house arrest in Rome, Epaphras brings Paul these concerns and these issues in Colossae. And what we call Colossians is Paul's response letter to them. Paul wrote this letter around 58 to 62 AD. And one of the interesting people who would have been listening to this letter being read publicly in the church gathering was a man by the name of Philemon. 
Now Philemon was a very wealthy leader in the church who, along with his wife Aphia, had hosted the church out of their home. So they were kind of like the hosts of the gathering in their home. And Philemon and Aphia's son, Archippus, was the pastor of the church in Colossae. Now Philemon had a slave named Onesimus, and Onesimus had previously run away from Philemon, which was a crime punishable by death. Well, Paul writes to him in the epistle we call Philemon, and he says to him, hey, not only do I not want you to hold him responsible for this crime, I want you to receive Onesimus back into your home. But Philemon, I don't want you to receive him as a slave. I want you to receive him back as a brother in Christ because that's who he is now. His entire identity has been changed. It's been shifted from slave to brother. And Philemon, I want you to welcome him back. And so Paul is acknowledging even through certain people in the church of Colossae, that our identity is now rooted in the supremacy of Christ, that Jesus is Lord of all. And that should have an impact even in our households. And so we look at Philemon chapter 1, verse 1, and it says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Now, we know from church history that that's exactly how Philemon responded. He welcomed Onesimus back into his home as a brother. And like Onesimus, our identity has also been forever changed because of who Jesus is in our life. And we're going to learn more about what it means to be Christ-centered through our study of Colossians. So that's kind of the background for the letter. Let's look, number two, at the reason, like why Paul actually is writing this letter. What were the issues that Epaphras was so concerned about in the church that he had planted that he would bring them to Paul and Paul would write this letter? What were the philosophies and the spiritual questions that people were asking? Well, if we took all of the things that were happening in the city and we put them in a blender, theologians call this problem the Colossian heresy. And so for a minute, I want to look at the Colossian heresy and what Paul's response is going to be in this letter, because it'll make a lot more sense as we study this, why he says certain things. And I think what we'll be is surprised at how similar the Colossian heresy is to our culture today. So there's seven aspects to this that we're going to explore. Let's look at them together. Number one, the Colossian heresy said that the spirit is good, but matter is evil. The Gnostics were greatly influential in the city of Colossae, and they taught that materialism, that matter was evil. And thus you would eliminate your body and anything physical and, and anything material, and you would just focus on the spirit. Well, what was Paul's answer to that? Paul's answer is found in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, where he said, God created all things for his glory. Now, if you held to the Colossian heresy, how could Jesus become a man? He could not have been a human. He would just be a spirit. And that's the second false belief. The second false belief is number two, Christ cannot be both human and divine. This is a difficult doctrine that we as Christians call the hypostatic union. How can Christ be truly man? And yet at the same time, simultaneously, how can he be truly God? And so in this letter, Paul's answer to that is found in chapter 1, verse 19. His answer is that Christ is God in the flesh, and he's head of the body. He is supreme. 
Now, the Colossian heresy tried to answer this question, how do I mature in spiritual things? Now, in their heresy, they believe, number three, that there is secret, deeper knowledge that you must attain. In other words, even if you were a Christian, that wasn't enough. There was something more that you had to attain to. You needed to go just a little bit deeper. In other words, what you had in Christ was not enough. There's something kind of under the surface, something mysterious, something secret. And ultimately, Paul's answer was, you don't need to dig deeper. His answer was found in chapter 2, verses 2 and 18, where he said, God's secret, God's mystery is Christ in us, and he has been revealed to all. Now, another idea in the Colossian heresy was that, number four, you needed to follow rituals and restrictions to be perfected. Certainly, the churches in the first century seem to all struggle a little bit with this notion. If you don't remember, go back and study our series in Galatians, and you'll realize that a lot of the churches in this part of the world in the first century were struggling with this confusion. And Paul's answer to that is that, no, these are shadows that are not ultimately fulfilling in themselves, but Jesus is the substance. He talks about that in chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. Now, how the Colossian heresy handled the body was in one of two responses. They either believed in strict asceticism, where you had rule after rule after rule after rule, or in complete opposition to that, they said, hey, matter is evil, and it's unrecognized by God in the first place, so just live it up in the body. You can do whatever you want because it's kind of not even real anyway. And so you kind of have legalism on one side, and you have licentiousness on the other. So on one sense, number five, they either believed you deny the body and live in strict asceticism. And Paul's answer to that is, hey, those look good, but they make you prideful and they're actually useless. Or you live it up and just indulge in sensuality. And Paul's answer for that is, no, no, no. Chapter three, verses one through 10, you're new and you're to put sin to death in your body kind of the classic definition of hedonism that pleasures the highest good and the proper aim of human life. And Paul says, no, we're new. We put off the old, we put on the new. Number six, the Colossian heresy believed that you listen to the wisdom and tradition and philosophies of this world. You kind of just embrace the collective wisdom of the day. But Paul said, no, 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 these are humanistic. These are shallow. You need to listen to Jesus in chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. Now, finally, number seven, the mystical polytheism all around them made them adopt this seventh idea, which is to combine different aspects of different religions. But see, the answer to the new spiritualist today is the same that it has been since the first century. Paul's response to that is, you have all that you need in Jesus. He is all sufficient. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Warren Wiersbe says this, he says, sad to say, there are many Christians who actually believe that some person, religious system, or discipline can add something to their spiritual experience, but they already have everything they ever will need in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I told you, we put all of that into a blender, and it's very similar to what many people around us culturally who are spiritual believe today. Let me just show you on the screen. Let me recap their beliefs. Look at this, look at this, this is incredible. Number one, there's an overemphasis on the spiritual. Number two, a dismissal of the claims of Christ. 
Number three, a hunger and pursuit of secret, deeper knowledge. Number four, an obsession with practicing self-discipline. Number five, an arrogance for what you don't eat or participate in, or an indulgence in the exhibition of hedonism. Number six, you adopt the current philosophical flavor of the month. And number seven, you see all beliefs as equally valid. Wow, does that not sound exactly like what Sarasota Bradenton Lakewood Ranch believes about our spirituality? If there were ever a time where we needed to learn the truths of Colossians, it is right here, it is right now. Now, let's look at the message that Paul is writing to them, the overall message. Both Colossians and the book of Ephesians were both written around this time, including Philemon and Philippians. And we call these four letters the prison epistles. Essentially, they were written by Paul while under house arrest, chained to a Roman soldier, really unable to leave the home, uh, quarantined, where the gospel, the word of God, did not uh, get hindered. It didn't stay chained. It was continuing to even have an effect now 2,000 years later. But Colossians and Ephesians are very similar. And one writer said this. He said, out of 95 verses in Colossians, 78 have a marked resemblance to Ephesians. So they're very similar books, but there is a huge difference. And the difference is that Ephesians is written primarily with the main subject being the church or the body of Christ, whereas Colossians, the main subject is the head of the church, which is Christ himself. And so if we were to break down this letter, we see a few big ideas and a few big outlines. First of all, Paul follows his normal kind of flow of thought that he does in most of his epistles where he begins with the doctrinal and then he goes to the practical. So chapters one and two are theological and they present Jesus as the preeminent creator, savior, and Lord. Then we get to chapters three and four and they're practical. And those show how the believer works out the lordship, works out the preeminence of Christ in our daily lives and in our relationships. Warren Wiersbe broke it down this way. He said, chapter one is doctrine. Chapter two is danger. And chapters three and four are the duties of the Christian. One of the main themes we see in the book of Colossians is the fact that Jesus is Lord of all. In fact, we see the word all mentioned over 30 times in just 95 verses. So for our study together, in every sermon through this series, we're going to see how to live a Christ-centered life. Uh, we're going to see Christ-centered identity today. We're going to see Christ-centered prayer. We're going to see Christ-centered creation, Christ-centered ministry and, and leadership and pastoring, Christ-centered worship, Christ-centered community, Christ-centered relationships, mission, and friendship. And so this morning, as we open up to chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we're going to see Christ-centered identity. So let's read verses 1 and 2, and we'll do a short exposition of these verses. Verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. Okay, let's break this down section by section. Notice with me, first of all, he says Paul, and he addresses himself as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, the word apostle just simply means sent one. Uh, we see this word used over and over in the book of John, used of Jesus. Jesus was sent. In fact, John 20, 21 
says, Jesus said to them, again, peace to you, as the Father has, there's that word, sent me, I also, here's the word again, send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So notice with me, how was Jesus sent? Jesus was incarnated, sent from the Father on mission. He was sent to a specific time, a specific place, to a specific people. He was among the people. He demonstrated the love of the Father in his family and among the tribes of Israel. He taught, he loved, he cared for, he rebuked, he healed, he laid down his life. He was among the people. He was incarnate. He was sent from the Father. And Jesus said, I'm sending you the same way. You are to be incarnational to the people that I'm sending you to that I'm sending you among. You're to be Christ among the people. And so Jesus, like Paul, was sent by the will of God. So Paul says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus, not by my own will, but by the will of the one who sent me. Paul never saw himself as a victim of, of different circumstances or, or a victim of any person or sent by any one man. In fact, in Galatians 1, he says, I haven't been commissioned by any man. I've been commissioned by Jesus himself. He saw himself as one called of God and gifted for the task that God had planned for him from birth. And so Paul's identity was completely settled in the plan of God from the foundation of the world. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He could have said Paul the blasphemer. He could have said Paul the Pharisee. He certainly could have said Paul of the tribe of Benjamin, a former student of Gamaliel, if he was trying to impress them. But no, Paul didn't root his identity in his ethnicity, Paul didn't root his identity in being a brunette or being left-handed or being an extrovert or, hey, I'm an ENFJ. You know what? I'm an Enneagram type three. No. See, today people link their identity to some personality type or worse, to some zodiac sign, and they believe that this is who I am. But I don't see any of that biblically. No, we, we are who we are by the will of God. Nothing before Christ found its way into Paul's identity. He says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And then he says, Timothy, our brother. He addresses that he is writing this letter with Timothy, a fellow saint, a fellow brother in Christ. I love that Timothy's mentioned here. Paul would always pour into other men. He knew what discipleship was and how that was the important aspect of what it means to be a Christian, that we make disciples. And Timothy was right there alongside him in this letter. And so Paul addresses them in verse 2 when he says whom the letter is written to. Notice verse 2, he says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now it's important that we note here that the scripture calls brothers and sisters in Christ, it uses this word, it calls us saints. That's very specific. Now you may have grown up hearing that a saint is some like Catholic superhero, but that's not a biblical understanding of what it means to be a saint. Uh, a saint is simply one who's been made holy because they've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you may not feel like a saint. In fact, you probably feel more like an ain't. The reality is the Bible calls us as brothers and sisters saints. But then he says faithful brothers. Now, that could just mean that we're faithful brothers and sisters or we're, we're brothers and sisters of the same faith that Christ is our elder brother, that we're co-heirs with Christ and God's our heavenly father. Could mean that. And yet there's an aspect to this phrase that seems to set it apart from the main category of saints. 
It's almost as if Paul is addressing those who haven't given to the Colossian heresy. Like he's addressing them separately from all the saints. Hey, to all the saints and specifically to the faithful brothers, the ones who've not abandoned their faith for something popular or attractive culturally. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. That's a standard greeting in most of Paul's letters. That's how he begins almost all of his correspondence. He says, grace to you and peace. And listen, church, they're, they're always in that order. In other words, because of the grace of God, we can experience peace from God. You can't experience peace with God until you first receive the grace of God. And God is our father. We are a part of the household of faith. That's why we use that phrase often at Shoreline. We say, you are now family. You're a part of the household of believers. If you've repented of your sins and you've trusted Christ, you're now in the family of God. And God is our father. Jesus said in Matthew 6, when you pray, you're to pray our father who's in heaven. We're going to see that idea that we're a part of this family. We're a part of the household of faith with Jesus as Lord over all. We're going to see that throughout our study together. Now, I want to apply what we've studied today in three ways. So if you're taking note, and I hope you are, write these three things down. Number one, we must biblically remember that our identity is in Christ. Of all the phrases that the Bible uses to describe followers of Christ, do you know what the number one use is? You might say, yeah, it's probably Christian. Well, did you know that the word Christian is only addressed three times in the New Testament? And yet the phrase in Christ is found 216 times. Paul addresses this letter in verse two, notice to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. In other words, you may be living in Colossae, but you're really in Christ. You are in him. And if you're in him, listen, you have all that you need. You lack nothing. Contrary to the Colossian heresy, there's nothing more you need to add to your faith. You have all that you need in him. So church, that reminds us that for those of us who are in Christ, we don't need more spirituality or more exercise or more healthy food or more stretching, more church attendance, more friends, more fitness or more righteousness to be complete in him. We have all that we need because he is all that we need. You and I right now, as we're, Uh, joining together this morning. We may be in quarantine, but you and I are actually, if we've confessed our sins and trusted Christ, we are in Christ. So the location in which you reside is the person and work of Christ. You're now in him. And the mystery is that Christ is in us. Our identity is forever changed because we have died and we've risen with Christ. The Bible says you are not your own. You were bought at a price. We need to understand our Christ-centered identity. Nothing before our death and resurrection with Jesus truly defines us. Nothing. You might say, but I'm Italian. Or, hey, I'm known for kind of being a political guy. Hey, I'm much more of of a loud person. Listen, those are not the defining mark of the Christian. The defining mark of the Christian is that we are in Christ. So, beloved, are you living in such a way that Christ's finished work primarily defines you. We need to realize that we biblically remember our identity is in Christ. Number two, if you're taking note, we must bravely reject false modern ideologies. Paul's motivation for writing this letter to this city was partly to correct 
the Colossian heresy that had crept into the church. He was willing to help them think biblically and to help them reshape their philosophies that were trying to blend other thoughts in with Christianity. If you were to ask me as a kid what my favorite drink was, I think it's called the suicide soda, which is a horrible name, by the way, but it's basically where you take the cup and you put it under all the dispensers. So you go to the, the Coke and you skip the Diet Coke, but then you go to Sprite and then you go to Dr. Pepper and then you go to root beer and orange soda and Gatorade and you just get all of them in this big concoction and then you drink it down. As a kid, I just loved that. There was something sinister about that. Like, you know what? I don't have to decide. I can have all the sodas at the same time. We felt like we were getting more for our money or something. But essentially, that's what many Christians seem to do with the Christian faith. They make it a syncretized faith, which means it's no faith at all. What I mean is they take Christianity and then they blend this belief and that philosophy and that ideology, and they're not biblical. And that means by definition, they're false. And they sprinkle them in here, just add a little here, add a little there. And what ends up happening is that the final result is no longer Orthodox Christianity. And like Paul, you and I need the boldness to say chapter two, verses four and eight where Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. In verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Listen, there are plenty of plausible arguments out there. There's plenty of human traditions and philosophies that will only delude our faith or take us captive. So we need to boldly reject them and we need to cling to Christ. And we're going to do that in this study together. Number three, if you're taking note, and this is a little more personal, let's bring it home. Number three, we must boundlessly respond to Christ's lordship over all. As you and I study the book of Colossians, we're going to see Christ's preeminence over all things, that he indeed is Lord over all. And that means that we will consistently respond in our times together by submitting to him as Lord. And what does that mean? That means personally relinquishing control and commanding all attention away from ourselves and back to the rightful place of worship, which is Christ alone. Did you know Leonardo da Vinci did many different works of art, but of course his most famous work was the Last Supper. He dedicated three years to this work and he determined that it would be his crowning work. Now before it was unveiled, Da Vinci decided to show the Last Supper painting to a good trusted friend whose opinion he had utmost respect for. Well the friend began to praise this picture in significant ways. But what he said to Da Vinci gripped him. He said, Hey, I love the cup in Jesus' hand. It is especially beautiful. Well, Da Vinci was incredibly disappointed and immediately began to paint that cup out of the masterpiece. And his distinguished friend said, what are you doing? And Da Vinci explained, he said, no, 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 nothing must distract from the figure of Christ. So he painted the cup out of it. And having removed the cup, Jesus's hand was still outstretched and his left hand was already above the table like it was there to bless and command. And so now the right hand also empty was outstretched invitingly. And what da Vinci wanted to do was to focus the viewer's attention solely on Christ. And the best way to do that was to remove the distraction of the cup. You know what church in our lives, as we've been quarantined to our homes, 
as we reflect on what is truly important and what in our lives may be a distraction, is there any area in your life, is there any place that's crept up, any idols that have crept up where you've not submitted an area of your life to Christ's Lordship? May the Spirit of God bring those things to mind throughout this study and even today as we close in prayer. But before we do, I want you to be thinking of those in your life who have kind of bought into the modern-day Colossian heresy. Is there someone that you know who needs Jesus, and they need to know that it's not about spirituality, it's not about religion, it's not about what we do, uh, it's about who Christ is, and it's about who we are in him. That they need to know the truth of the gospel. Maybe they see all beliefs as equally valid. Do you know someone like that? We're going to be doing some special videos this season to address other views and how the gospel answers them. So continue to pray. Continue to pray for those people. Continue to look for resources that we'll have. And maybe that person is even coming to your mind. We're going to pray for them in just a moment. But throughout the course of this study, for all of us, may Jesus be Lord of our lives in a new and more realized way during this unique cultural moment. May we continue to submit our lives to his lordship. Albert Kuyper said, there is not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, this is mine, this belongs to me. May we biblically remember, may we bravely reject those false notions, and may we boundlessly respond to the lordship of Jesus. May our lives, may our identity, may our boldness in the face of heresy, our submission to his will reflect his lordship. Jesus is Lord of all. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus, the sent one, who came and took our place and died on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, that we have responded in faith and received Christ because you knew us from the foundation of the world. Lord, you allowed us to come to a saving knowledge of the Savior. And today, Lord, there's a need in our life to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. There's a need in the people around our community, maybe our family or friends, to know Jesus and not to buy in to some of these false extra ideologies. So Lord, we pray for them, whoever they are. Maybe it's an aunt, maybe it's a, a neighbor, a coworker, a friend. Lord, we lift them up to you today. And we pray, Lord, that you would reach them, that we would be used as a catalyst to bring them to Christ. Help us not to shrink back. Help, help us to have boldness to share our faith. And Lord, we pray that we would submit our lives to you, that we would know who we are and whose we are, that we are now in Christ and that nothing prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus and to our own death and resurrection with him, none of those things truly define us, but Lord, who we are now in you and who you are in us. So we thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do in this study. We pray this week, Lord, that we would know of different areas by the Spirit's revelation in our hearts where we need to submit. And maybe there's an area, Lord, that is unwilling to bow the knee. Lord, would you break that area? Would you break that idolatry? Lord, we want to submit to you as Lord. So we love you. We commit the rest of our day to you. We trust you with our lives. And we thank you that you indeed, Jesus, are Lord of all. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Hey, we love you so much. Uh, hope you guys have a great week. Continue to stay tuned. Focus on the Lord this week. Go to thisisshoreline.com to stay updated with different updates that we have and our digital bulletin. Until next week, continue to trust the Lord. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he lift up your countenance and be gracious to you and give you great peace. 
Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.